The following is a presentation of the Retro Network. Greetings, geeks, and welcome to Wizards, the podcast guide to comics, mini-episode 29.5. This supersized issue of Wizard had 300 pages in it, and it covered a lot of stuff. That's why we couldn't even cram everything into the main episode. So this time, we are essentially supersizing this mini-episode. If you want to think of it like a cookie, it's like when you take two double-stuffed Oreos, take half the thing off, and smash them together to make this like jumbo mega ultra-sized Oreo. Don't tell me you never did it because you're a liar. Everyone's done it. You've seen a double stuff Oreo. You've seen another one in your hand. You're like, let's smash these suckers together, dip them in some milk and try to stuff that giant cookie in your mouth. That's what this mini episode is. So let's get after it. A comic odyssey. If you thought 1993 was a hectic time for comics, leap ahead and see what the industry is like in the next 10 years. So yeah, this is kind of a pretty funny article. We get Wizards predictions for not 1994, but 2004. And they even have, you know, underneath where it's where it has the page count, it says January 2004 as the mm-hmm. date. So here are a few of their predictions. The first one, McFarlane buys Marvel. Comic book mogul Todd McFarlane has completed a deal with corporate raider Ron Perlman to acquire a controlling share of Marvel Communications Group. It goes on to say that McFarlane has equally ambitious plans for the superhero line, which he wants to reduce to 500 titles by the end of this year. To quote McFarlane, I'm just trying to clear out a little space to make room for new Spawn titles like Spawn, Spawn Unlimited, Spawn's pal Jimmy Olsen, and Marvel's Spawn in One. So the question is, did this happen? Are they right? No. Nope. Not even close. I mean, Marvel does get purchased, but not by McFarlane either. I don't think McFarlane would want to. He's so wealthy from his action figure line that he could care less, truth be told. And he's never worked for Marvel since this. Uh, I think he did something for Spider-Man where he did a cover not too long ago. But I forget what it was. I think like maybe for Spider-Man 700 or something like that. Oh, yeah, it was. Uh, I don't think he did the whole thing, but he did contribute. He did a cover or something or, or a couple pa- or maybe a page of something. Yeah. Well, yeah, I think I think uh, 700 had a bunch of variant covers. Yeah. And I think he I'm did one of Bob. the variants. Yeah. So, Bob, what's next on this Magic 8-Ball Fortune Teller Wizard magazine? Well, this was a future in which I in which I wish I lived. Spider-Man film to Laserdisc. After numerous delays and three years of post-production, Marvel announced that Spider-Man the movie will finally see theatrical release, but only in selected European markets. It will be released on Laserdisc later this year in the U.S., Marvel CEO Todd McFarlane says 
hey, it's a lemon no matter how you splice it. They're really leaning into this McFarlane buys Marvel situation. If he does and releases Spider-Man on Laserdisc, Spider-Man the movie, I should say, the canon films release, that would be, <laughs> you know what? Take take the whole thing, Todd. <laughs> take, take all the money. There you go. Yeah. So did this happen? No, it did not. In a way, <laughs> they were a couple years off on the release of the Spider-Man movie. And also, it was not by any means a dud. They were so used to Marvel movies being, you know, only released in European markets and theaters that they predicted the same for Spider-Man. But they also think that Laserdiscs landed uh, past 94. Because I remember I had a science teacher that had like a giant Laserdisc player. And he used to love taking that thing out. He was like, oh, it was the greatest thing ever. We would watch like nature shows on it. And... I was like, this is never going to last. How can something, this, it was so expensive and so big. I'm like, it's never going to survive. I, and then DVDs came. I weirdly also had the science teacher that loved Laserdisc. <laughs> right? Isn't that yeah. weird? I don't know. It, I, it, yeah, I don't know what it is. I think it's, 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 it appeals to the people that like are okay with CD technology, but long for the days of the vinyl record. I think so. It's That's like, oh, it's, cool. it's both things in one. <laughs> it is. So... The next thing it says is Macaulay Culkin signs on for Batman six Roman numeral V one. For those of you who doesn't who can't remember Roman numerals like me amid an uproar of fan protest reminiscent of the commotion caused by the casting of Michael Keaton in the original Batman movie. Warner brothers announced that the actor Macaulay Culkin has signed a $100 million contract to star in Batman six Keaton, who portrayed Batman in the first five films, doesn't seem disappointed. It was kind of inevitable, the actor says. I'm sort of patterning my career after Sean Connery at this point. Well, I'm glad that didn't happen, and I would have liked to have seen five Batman. We did get Sean Connery as Bane, though. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, you might you might get five Michael Keaton Batman movies, depending you on want, if the DC oh, yeah. you ever pulls its stuff yeah, together. Yeah, if if Flash you know ever gets started filming, we'll see. So, and Macaulay Culkin not the draw that they thought he'd be. <laughs> no, definitely not. In 2004. I mean, he is sort of ageless, though. So you know, he did post recently. He's like, guess what, guys? I'm 40 this year, <laughs> which is kind of frightening. Yeah. All right, so in in more predictions, Valiant gets real. Nintendo of America and Valiant have announced a joint venture that Valiant calls Valiant Virtual Reality Vision. Comics using the new VVRV process will look and read like normal Valiant comics until you plug them into Nintendo's new 256-bit game machine and don the VVRV glasses, which will ship in December. Ninjack number 125 will be the first book to feature the VVRV tech no <laughs> they had very high hopes for valiant here and uh they were not around in 2004 and also we haven't even gotten past 64 bit let alone 256 bit that's pretty ambitious nor are there <laughs> virtual reality comics right as far as i know not that i'm aware of there was that nintendo vr boy headset thing that lasted about 10 seconds because it gave everybody oh. like migraines from the red screen that they were staring at the virtual boy. I had one of those. Yes. Yes. And lived to tell the tale. <laughs> you did. You did. Clearly. Yeah. No, it's uh, yeah, that definitely led to like some eye strain and headaches. Some quick hits in their 
off-kilter predictions, Voyager Communications acquires Disney, which leads to a crossover comic called Turok Muppet Hunter. No, didn't happen. <laughs> didn't happen. Did not happen. On the contrary, Disney buys everything. Make that a note. Superman divorces Lois, and Harlan Ellison has been named as Wizard's new editor-in-chief. <laughs> no. No. Uh, the Superman divorces Lois has a pretty funny fake quote from Dan Jurgens, where he says, Lois and Superman had a good marriage for a while, but lately he's been realizing that she's going to grow old and die while he remains unchanged. That's a hard thing for both of them to come to grips with. I think it's harder for Lois. I think so, too. <laughs> I, think, I think he could have just said that he's starting to realize that he's Superman. Like that. Yeah. yeah. What else do you need to say? Right. Uh, you know. Here's some. Here's another piece. And I think this is what happened. Few people in 1993 would have predicted that uh, Jean-Paul Valley, heir apparent to the title of Batman, would turn out to be Batman's greatest enemy. They eventually become adversaries at the end of Nightfall, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. Briefly. But not in 2004. Yeah. No. No, it's, not- it's he's uh, Azrael, agent of the Bat. That's a good potential prediction, but... It doesn't, you know, I think people were so disgusted by the whole Jean-Paul Valley thing. They just kind of like, eh, let's just get rid of him or figure out how we could like bury him somehow. And all of a sudden now he's making a resurgence in, in, uh, you know, a couple of different Elseworld stories, which is interesting. So if you, if, if you guys are into such things in, I think it was around 94, actually, the BBC put out a nightfall radio drama with like a full cast and sound effects and stuff. And I have it on, uh, yeah, I have it on. On Laserdisc, yeah. <laughs> but it is one of the coolest things like that I've ever heard. And it was orig- originally sold on cassette tape. I have it on CD now. I can actually send it to you. Ooh, I feel, I like, would, I I feel would... like you told me about this. Yeah, I definitely want to hear that. It's, yeah, it's so rad. It's really cool. cool. And that is Wizards Predictions for 2004, none of which came to fruition other than they were close with the Spider-Man movie. You know, what they say about, you know... Nothing's close as like horseshoes and hand grenades. Like you're almost as close enough for that kind of thing. I f***ed up that joke completely. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, yeah. So whatever. That was a good prediction, but nothing really worked out. They were about as accurate as Griswell and Ed Wood. Yeah. All right. Well, you know, we love our action figures around here. So does Wizard. And so Brian Cunningham's Toying Around section is giving us the best toy figures of 1993. Yes, his own top 10 that he is counting down. So this is pretty interesting, his choices, because I have a feeling, you know, given his druthers, it would have been all like Star Wars figures or something, but they're just word Star Wars figures to be had at this time. Um, so Unless you like Bendy's. Yeah, exactly. Oh, the Star Wars bendems. You had to love them. Number 10 from Hasbro is G.I. Joe Star Brigade's Target. I I, I was not a G.I. Joe kid. I wasn't allowed to have G.I. Joes. So I don't know what this is. But it says, I've always maintained that Cobra guys are among the coolest looking villains of all toydom. And Target holds true to form. Did you have this figure? Do you know what this is? Um, I'm pulling it up right now, and it's actually a terrible-looking figure. Like, I don't know why he would consider this. I mean, 
This is, it's literally like just a generic body that's painted kind of like a a puke green shiny color. And it's got a big purple helmet on, but it's just like a solid piece of plastic. Like this is this is really a lackluster figure. I don't know if you put it at number ten to make a point, but yeah, I would. I Brian, I, I got to call you out on this one. This is not a good figure. But again, he loves Star Wars and space things, so maybe he seems to like the movable visor on it. Oh that, well, that's his big review. So so you can't tell it's movable because it's all literally the same color of this figure. But I guess once you flip it up, must be awesome. <laughs> And he says, an otherwise featureless helmet. So I guess mm-hmm. he's he just likes the functionality. Way to go, Target. You made it. <laughs> Number nine is X-Men's Bishop by Toy Biz. Standing broad-shouldered amongst the other X-Men figures, Bishop looks ready to blow away any evil mutant or goofy-looking human, for that matter. Um, so he's pointing out... Uh, the quick draw gimmick. I had this figure as a kid, and yeah, it was one of those things where literally you just like you clicked his arm up, and then you clicked it in the back, and it released, and then he had a gun that had a hinge on it, so mm-hmm. it would like flip the gun hinge. I always thought it was actually kind of dumb. Like I liked the hitting feature, but not holding the gun feature. But yeah. he mentions here, unfortunately, because of Bishop's longish hair, the head is not movable. So. I, I have this figure. I bought it. I rebought it within the last year. It, it looks really cool. It's got a great paint job. Got a lot of great colors. Yeah, it's I a dig good it. sculpt. Yeah, so you can't move his neck. Eh, I don't <laughs> think that's important with this one. Looks nice on a shelf. Number eight is Batman the Animated Series Scarecrow figure. He says, never in my life did I think I'd see a Scarecrow figure in any way, shape, or form. But then again, I never thought I'd see a GW Bridge figure either. <laughs> uh, this was a really cool toy. And he, he references one of its like coolest features, which was the red eye effect. When you place the light over its head, almost like the dark side figure from superpowers and also uh, used on the shadow figure that Kenner I, also produced i knew you would not let me <laughs> leave without mentioning that the shadow figure has that feature yeah it's it's a really cool toy and that's a great toy line i love the batman the animated series toys they are yeah they're pulled straight from the screen they're fantastic number seven is x-men strong guy also by toy biz now this is interesting because he says, although the character's not one of my favorite X people, this action figure is really sharp because it looks identical to Straw Guy in the comics. Not that there's much to screw up, but I've seen simpler characters ruined in translation. So I, I think that's kind of interesting that he just thought it was a big deal that it actually looked like the character because that was so rare in these days to get a decent sculpt. He also mentions that Straw Guy could also disco and do the twist with his pivot action what more can you ask from an action figure <laughs> i had that figure when it came out and what was so cool was that it was just gigantic it was so right. big compared to the other ones yes yeah, uh, I, so, I never bought straw guy i bought tusk for oh, that reason right. So number six is the Aliens Alien Queen from Kenner. It says, ever since the first film was released in 1979, I've been willing to sell body parts, some of them anyway, to get my mitts on an alien figure. Uh, so yeah, this was kind of the new line, I would say kind of inspired by the Dark Horse comics. Uh, yeah, or their yeah success. it had to have been, yeah. Because then they uh, went on to do the Predator versus Alien line and the Predator toys, yeah. Yeah, they were, they were cool. I was never a big fan of Aliens or Predator as a kid, but my friends were and they had them and they looked cool. 
Yeah, I, I didn't watch the movies as a kid, obviously, but I had a lot of those figures just because the designs were so fantastic. All right, number five, classic Star Trek collector set. And he says, just because it's publicly known that I wasn't enthralled with the classic Star Trek TV series doesn't mean I can't admire the action figures based on its characters. He says, specifically, the bridge setting, which is part of the packaging, is an especially stylish touch. And hey, there's Sulu and Chekhov figures to boot. I've an unabashed fan of Mr. Sulu, for those of you who don't know. Oh my. <laughs> I had this set. I bought it on clearance at Toys R Us. It was awesome, and at some point in my life, I got rid of it, and I really regret it. It was really cool. And I kept that box for a while, too, just because it did look like the classic Star Trek uh, set. Oh, that's neat, man. That's so cool that you had that. Yeah. Someday, I'll have it again. <laughs> so number four is G.I. Joe Hall of Fame's Destro from Hasbro. Once again, I'm getting the G.I. Joes, and I hate G.I. Joe. Uh, it says, one of the assets of the G.I. Joe line of figures has been that its villains have always looked more interesting than its heroes. Once again, same thing. Which serves to highlight the courage of the good guys. Destro is no exception as this larger-than-life-sized version of him is very well-crafted. I never had a Destro. I had I had a handful of G.I. Joes, but what I find so interesting is this series, this Hall of Fame series, they were like Barbie-sized, you know? They were like they were like full-sized oh. figures that were made that were like dolls, and they had like lots of accessories. And specifically, he points out, he says, he has a knife that has the coolest little Destro head on the end of its handle. No fooling! <laughs> All right, number three is Jurassic Park's Tyrannosaurus Rex by Ketter. Speaking of larger than life, this T-Rex speaks, or roars rather, for itself. The height is so soft that it feels like human skin. Now, this was actually like my favorite thing about that Jurassic Park line. I didn't buy any of them because the humans didn't look like the actors except for Jeff Goldblum eventually. And then they redid the head sculpts, but by then I didn't care. And so it was one of those things where I, was, I ignored them. But the, my friend had them and I admired the dinosaurs because you could do dino damage and rip out chunks of flesh and it felt like real flesh <laughs> <laughs> they were cool that, that was a really neat feature so number two on our list is x-men's apocalypse from toy biz uh, as far as evil mutant action figures go have you ever seen anything meaner looking than this figure? Bart Sears definitely knew the right mood to catch Apocalypse in when he designed this figure. The replaceable mechanical arms are kind of dumb, but the looming presence this figure has compared to the happy-go-lucky villains like Magneto and Omega Red is impressive. I had two different Apocalypse figures, maybe? I think yeah, at this time. So Apocalypse 2 is the one he's talking about. I have it still on my shelf here. That is a very cool fun fact that Bart Sears designed that figure. I love the fact that his arms came on and off and you could put different you know, configurations of them. I mean, it was just super fun. Much better than the original one that was part of the first wave of the Toy Biz X-Men figures. That Apocalypse is just sad. I think I, think I had the sad one. <laughs> with the extending arms and legs yeah that's the one i had i yeah. had sad apocalypse <laughs> all right now number one taking that number one spot is batman the animated series man bat by kenner he's like as much as i thought i'd never see a scarecrow figure i thought i'd see a hundred scarecrows before i ever saw a man bat figure and no i'm not talking about that nick manabat guy who draws cybernary either he doesn't have his own action figure man bat has always been one of my favorite bat characters and i'm very pleased that kenner had the guts to make this figure despite its difficulties with standing upright when its wings are 
spread. The figure, when placed next to the other Batman the Animated Series figures, is extremely intimidating. My favorite of 1993. So what do you know about the Man-Bat character from Batman the Animated Series, Stephen? Why does he have a special place in the rogues gallery of that animated cartoon? Well, the premiere episode of Batman the Animated Series was called On Leather Wings. And that was a man-bad episode. Yep. And it was, I think, you know, it set the tone for what the series was going to be. They went with kind of a a B-level villain, I'd say, from the 1970s and just kicked it off in such a huge, cool, scary, different kind of way. Yeah, and it, it's a cool toy. I don't. I don't remember if I had it. I know I've, I've played with it, but I don't think I had it. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, it is kind of unwieldy. I can see how it would be very hard for it to stand up. It's got tiny legs and a giant, heavy torso. So I'm surprised they've never done Man Bat in live action. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know. I, I don't think I'd want to see Man Bat, because they're always so focused on, in a certain respect, trying to make Batman out to be, like, the realistic superhero, you know? Like, he's fighting, you know, street-level villains, and they just have gimmicks. So, to have a fully mutated Bat creature he's battling, I don't know. Give me a Man Bat Clayface movie. I'm in. <laughs> I'm ready. Clayface as Man Bat. That'd be a good fake out. <laughs> there you go. So of the top 10, what would you have put in the number one spot, Stephen? I would have put the Star Trek collector set. It was just such a massive, cool six figures, Spock, Kirk, McCoy, and the display box was just perfect. So that, that would have been my number one. Okay, yeah. And like I say, the fact that I've kept him around this long, I got to put the Apocalypse 2 figure at the front. I mean, it's just a wonderful sculpt. It finally looked like the character from the comics. And then it just, yeah, it had a fun feature. I like to break my toys when it's not actually breaking them. <laughs> there we go. Those were the top 10 toys of 1993. According to Brian Cunningham, if you had a favorite, be sure to let us no, we want to hear about it on social media. With that, we'll pass it over to you, Michael. Now we're going to take a moment to remember those we lost in 1993 with this year's Wizards in Memoriam. Harvey Kurtzman. Alden McWilliams, Brandon Lee, Marjorie Henderson Buell, Robert Shane, V.T. Hamlin, Now on to the books or stories or things that we lost in 1993 with Wizards Lament for the Lost, a look back at the comic titles that bit the dust in 1993. Dark Horse Comics, Young Indiana Jones, The Blue Lily. John Burns, Next Men, Danger Unlimited, DC Comics, The Justice Society of America, Hawkworld, Aquaman, Green Lantern, Mosaic, Black Condor, Image Comics, Shaman's Tears, Stupid, 
Malibu Comics, Captain Harlock, Marvel Comics, Terror Inc., Night Stalkers, Ghost Rider, Blaze, Spirit of Vengeance, Marvel, Milestone, Hellraiser, Pinhead. Now we're going to talk about the top 10 comics of December of 1993. Just looking at this page, I see that there are some new issues different from ones we've read in the past. Oh, fun. Yeah, there's not a lot of duplicates. There's a couple of duplicates, but not that many. Number 10 is Catwoman number one. I have this issue. I love this cover. Recently bought a ton of them on eBay about two years ago. I bought like the first... 12 issues on ebay for pretty cheap actually and i was a big fan i was really happy to get them because i love this costume design and i was i love this book so it's what it says here the entire bat line of books is certainly doing well these days and deservedly so the editors of this line have kept continuity flowing smoothly and the stories have all been great reads the new Catwoman title is no exception. The initial story arc in the book focuses on the antagonism between Catwoman and Bane and bubbles the interesting subplots. The artwork is by fan favorite Babe Maestro. Ugh, who writes this stuff? Jim Balanch and is solid throughout. And the writing is by Joe Duffy Meritorious. Mm-hmm. Is that a word? I guess so. We're still hoping for a little more insight into the Selena Kyle aspect of the lead character, but the action-oriented content of the first batch of issues has been a gas nonetheless. For more excellent bat-related action, don't forget to check out the new Robin series. That one is a winner as well. Yeah, I love this costume, and Joe Duffy becomes kind of a mini-celebrity in these pages. She gets a lot of coverage. Yeah. Especially coming up in 33. So, yeah, it's, it's awesome stuff. You know what's interesting about this, though? From my memory, Catwoman is not a significant player in the Nightfall, like, main story. Huh. I don't remember. I feel like she's not, Honestly. like, as prevalent as she would be nowadays in, yeah. in a major story arc. So, moving on to number nine, it's Daredevil Man Without Fear, number one, artist John Romita Jr., writer Frank Miller. So it says, you know, it sure does seem like the comic industry, not unlike the music business, is in a retro phase these days. While people are dancing to the BGs in clubs and listening to Meatloaf again, comic fans have put Marvel titles in the spotlight. Seven books in our top ten. And we're reading Frank Miller Daredevil stories again. This certainly isn't a bad thing. Well, except for the BGs and Meatloaf part. As anyone who's read this series will attest, Mr. Miller is giving us fans the definitive origin of the character who has seen all kinds of ups and downs lately in terms of sales as well as characterization. The cover on this baby is quite nice too. One of those rare books for which the enhancement on the front is just an appetizer to the good reading main course underneath. What's your thoughts on John Romita Jr.? I prefer John Romita Sr. <laughs> I, I agree. 
I really like John Romita Sr. He's probably my favorite Spider-Man artist. But he's good. I like John. I think I think Junior is good as well. I think he's good. I don't think he's as great as people make him out to be. I think his dad is just like iconic, you know, and it's one of those things that's like it's hard to measure up when your dad is that famous and like that well known. But I think his art is is very unique. Like it's different than most artists, you know. Yeah, it's big shoes to fill. But he he, de- he definitely carved out his own space in the comic book world. I agree. I met him once. Uh, he's a very nice guy. Super nice guy. Oh, nice. Yeah. Uh, number eight is Moon Knight number fifty six. No secret as to what jammed this book into our countdown this month. Stephen Platt's artwork has thrust him into the limelight faster than any penciler in recent memory. This Platt character, quite a nice chap, actually. Uh, okay. The art fans are in an uproar with highly energized, extremely stylized penciling approach. The latest in a long line of Canadian comic prose is accumulating a fan following quicker than hairspray salesmen on the island nightclubs. <laughs> oh, man. Perfect. I'm just going to stop reading it right there. <laughs> That's hilarious. God. What what's number what's number seven? <laughs> okay, good place to end it. Number seven is Wolverine number seventy-five, artist Adam Kubert, writer Larry Hama. It says everyone's favorite mutant berserker gets messed up by Magneto. And we all want to know what happens to the poor little guy. Unless you've been living under a rock, you already know that Magneto threw Logan a severe beat beating, extricating the adamantium from his body and testing his mutant hailing factors at limits. I'll say that again. And testing his mutant healing factor's limits. As readers of this issue know, Wolvie lives in a pretty gruesome scene. We find out that his claws are actually bone. No longer able to help the X-Men like he used to, he strikes out alone. And we can follow his solo adventures in his own title. So there you go. Nice little hologram on that cover. Yeah, definitely. Is this the issue after the Adamantium is ripped out? I don't know. It says it... Because it feels like it's the like the cover would assume that it's already been ripped out of his body. Yeah, maybe it was a cliffhanger. I don't know. Someone will know and, and call us out on it. I'm sure they will. It's 30 years ago. Give me a break. But number six is a book I know a lot about. Yeah, I'm sure you do. So number six is Fantastic Four number 381. Another Marvel book hits the hot t- and it's the Fantastic Four of all things. Why? I guess because they were were they that popular or were they not popular? They were kind of unpopular at this point. Okay. It feels like we're in an early 80s instead of the 90s. Sudden death hits the FF. Reed Richards gets turned into ash courtesy of longtime nemesis and all around bad guy, Dr. Doom. Boy, did I hyphenate the crud out of that sentence <laughs> it's two hyphens it's not two like hyphens. What, are you, what are you getting in here weirdo writing this thing when it was announced that one of the fantastic four would be killed the news didn't travel through the, the comic grapevine all that quickly and thus the book was under ordered what happened was the usual uss so prevalent here in the top 10 what is what does the uss mean I don't know. I don't know what that means. Under 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 store service. I don't know. Whatever. 
So anyway, it says a small order plus a big demand equals a hot seller. If only they didn't go killing off Dr. Doom at the same time they killed off old Stretchio. Oh, well, they'll both be back before you know it. (laughs) (laughs) This is one of my favorite single issues. I was obsessed with finding it, as I've mentioned many times. It's a cool cover. It's a really beautiful cover. It's cool. It's cool. And it it broke my heart to see Reed go, go out that way. So number five is a book we've covered endlessly. Yeah. I'm so sick of talking about it. It's prime number two. Don't even bother reading. We, we've read it ad nauseum. So it's, yeah. Prime number two, underordered, yada, yada, yada. It's moving up the charts. <laughs> Great. Yada, moving yada, up. yada. Yada, yada, yada. Over the best part. <laughs> Did you? Did Talk you? about the bisque. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I love Seinfeld. <laughs> Me too. Me too. Number four. Another book we've talked about a gazillion times is Daredevil 320. The essentially, you know, the fall from grace storyline, yada, yada, yada. We've talked about it. Great. Electra's back. Yay. Yeah. Uh, Book number three is a book we talked about last time. Green Lantern 46, a book that I love. One of the last issues before Hal Jordan goes crazy and wipes out all the Green Lanterns. And it's got a Superman cover. uh, Really neat. And it says when the super popular reign of the Superman storyline was nearing its conclusion and readers were hitting the comic stands in droves, DC snuck this little gem into the mix. They consider this one kind of rare. They were really running with it in the pages of Wizard. Beautiful cover. I say pick it up if you don't have it. Yeah, it's a cool cover. Very cool. Number two is Moon Knight 55, another book we've talked about before. Look in the bottom right corner of this book. Okay, I'm looking in the bottom right corner of this Mm -hmm, book. mm -hmm, mm -hmm. What does it say? Splat. I guess because of Platt, Stephen Platt. Okay. That appears to be the manner in which newcomer Stephen Platt has hit the industry with a splat. Okay. So this one felt about as well. It's moved up the charts, I guess. So great. It's a direct sales of 40,000 copies. I don't know. Jeez. Way to go, Moon Knight. Yeah, right. So number one is another book that has been covered many times by us and Wizard, Daredevil number 319. It says, we here at Wizard are about to coin a new phrase for the phenomenon through which books get hot without the benefit of a wheelbarrow full of hype behind them. Daredevil number three was a great recent example of a book that screamed up the buckle meter as a beneficiary of unordered surprise syndrome from here Mm -hmm. on in known as the USS. So you see, they go from 1 to 10, and we go from 10 to 1, and that's why we didn't realize what USS was. So it's unordered surprise syndrome. (laughs) Maybe in the next issue we should do this as a 1 to 10. I guess so. It makes more sense to go from the least spot. 10 to 1. Yeah, yeah, but reading it now, it seems like we we made a boo-boo here. Yeah. Speaking of boo-boos, for most of my life, I used to call it a wheelbarrow. (laughs) <laughs> it wow. was only only recently that i learned that it was wheelbarrow and i don't understand why <laughs> it's almost like when i mentioned the spanky Mego figure that i had yes <laughs> it's now this i didn't expect it going in the wheelbarrow uh, discussion but yeah 319 short ordered you know fall from gray storyline cool new cover and it says a uh, very cool cover of daredevil getting caught tossed like a salad off of the chrysler building which makes this book number one okay tossed like a salad is not a phrase that i would have 
thought of, no. No, I mean, if they've seen Oz, it means something different. Yes. <laughs> but we're not going there. Now, a history of Gen 13. Take it away, Adam. Hey there, geeks! Adam calling in on the Gen 13 line to tell you all about those wacky kids from Image Comics. This installment is going to be a prehistory of the book with all its trials and tribulations and getting on to comic book shelves. And next time around, I'll give you my review of the actual miniseries. Now, issue 29 was a year-in-review look at 1993, and if Jim Lee had his way, Gen 13 would have made the list. But unfortunately, the book was delayed despite heavy promotion all throughout the year. The team was supposed to debut in their own miniseries in early 1993 under the name Gen X, as promoted in three different ads in Wizard over several months. The first was a vertical two-page ad featuring the main team of Fairchild, Grunge, Freefall, and Burnout running towards the reader. The second was also a two-page vertical ad, but this time it was just an armored soldier standing in front of a wanted poster with their faces on it. With the promise that the book was coming in August 1993. This wanted poster design was also used as the cover of the August 1993 issue of Inside Image Magazine number 6, which was also promoting the group as Gen X and featured an interview with artist Jeffrey Scott. More on him in a minute. Now, there was also a four-page series of ads in Wizard number 23 giving each team member their own pinup drawing of, on consecutive but separate pages. These pinup ads also ran in Image Comics of the time, so they were definitely trying to get the word out about this hot new book of teen heroes. But despite all of this hype, Gen 13 didn't debut in a comic book until Deathmate Black, which was also delayed, by the way, as part of the Image Valiant crossover event that we have covered in past episodes. The story there was actually being told from Fairchild's point of view as the narrator in a dystopian alternate reality leading a band of rebels called the Gen 13. Freefall, Grunge, and Burnout all appear, but get killed during a battle. Without any context for the characters prior to this I'm sure the story kind of fell flat for most people, but Fairchild did get some pretty awesome pages dedicated to her in the final moments of the book. Now, an explanation as to the name change from Gen X to Gen 13, well, that is found in Wizard 27, where, quote, Lee explains the reason for changing the name of Gen X to Gen 13. At first, Marvel claimed it was similar to Generation X. Then they claimed it was similar to Genetics, a book in the Marvel UK line. I didn't put that X there to fool the kids into thinking that this is a mutant book or something. I just thought it sounded cool. We decided to change it to Gen 13, which stands for the 13th generation of Americans. So there you have it. What Gen 13 means, why it was changed. Basically, he didn't want to get into hot water with Marvel. Didn't want to bother with that hassle. So good on you, Jim. Wizard 28 featured a brand new promo image of Gen 13 on the back 
back of the Simpsons poster that was included in the middle of that issue. This is actually the only time Jim Lee drew the characters, as far as I can tell, outside of the issue zero. This image actually became the cover of the Gen 13 Wizard half comic. I actually cut out this poster and had it on my bedroom wall next to a picture of Xena Warrior Princess in junior high until I started buying the ongoing series. So it's kind of interesting to me that particular image was drawn by Jim Lee. It actually led to a lot of confusion for me with the original miniseries, which I'll talk about more next time around. So if Jim Lee didn't draw the book or the promo art for the most part, who did, you're probably asking? Well, it was a guy named Jeffrey Scott, or Jeffrey Campbell, or Jeff Scott Campbell, or as you know him, J. Scott Campbell. Yeah, he had a hard time finding his official artist moniker in the early days, and every piece of art for Gen 13 seemed to feature a different variation on his name, which I'm sure was leading to some confusion for those who were trying to follow it. I will mention also what adds to the confusion for me in retrospect is that my best friend's name is Jeff Campbell. So all these Jeff Campbells in my life, it's kind of crazy. But you gotta give the guy a break because he was brand new to the biz. I mean, you see, Jeff was hired by Jim Lee from an homage studio's talent search featured in Wildcats number two. And after just two weeks at the studio, Jim Lee showed him some sketches of a team of teenage superheroes, and they started developing the idea together into Gen X and eventually Gen 13. Now, Campbell says that all the names and basic designs for Fairchild and Grunge and Burnout and Freefall existed, except that Jeff had a sketch himself of this young female character, and he suggested it be used for Freefall, which Jim Lee approved for inclusion on the team. So he kind of gets credit for the visual look of Freefall, but the name already existed. The story and script were being handled by longtime Jim Lee collaborator Brandon Choi, and Campbell's art was being inked amazingly, I might add, by Alex Garner. So at this point, you might be wondering, when did Gen 13 finally come out? Well, the first issue of the miniseries arrived in comic shops in February 1994, and that is where we're going to pick up next time around. But before I go, I wanted to give you another piece of history that I found fascinating, because as I went back to read through the miniseries, I found on the letters page of issue number four, J. Scott Campbell has some scathing remarks for Wizard. Like, he just enters the industry, he's got a book out on the shelves, and already he is the subject of criticism, or at least he didn't have a thick skin yet. So, here is what J. Scott Campbell had to say. I was reading my second favorite comic fanzine the other day, and I came upon an item that grabbed my interest. Though I normally try to let my artwork do my talking, this particular piece was so interesting, I thought I should address it in front of a wide audience. So I'm climbing out from behind my drawing board to speak to my fellow Gen 13 fans. The magazine that accompanies some really nice polybag trading cards printed their theories on what makes a book. A book like Gen 13, for example, hot. The so-called formula for success advocated by this guide to comics is a fourfold plan. I was amused by the simplicity of this formula and wondered if there were any way it might account for the current success of Gen 13. What follows is their plan and my own conclusions. Number one, fill the cast with teenagers. Kids relate to this. Duh. Hey, wait a second. If teen books sell, why is Teen Titans being canceled? And how come Todd McFarlane's book is constantly number one 
one on the charts. I thought Spawn was an older guy. Number two, clad the babes in the groups as scantily as possible to capture the pervert market. Perverts, huh? I guess Wizard is referring to you people reading this. Hmm, I wonder if this rule applies to comic book fanzines as well. Anyone know if the Catwoman sticking her butt in your face cover or the nice fold-out TNA shot of the X-Babes helped sell any more fanzines? Number three, get a guy who draws like Jim Lee to pencil it. I don't draw like Jim Lee. It should be obvious, I'm an Art Adams clone. Sheesh. Get it straight, guys. Number four, hype it up almost a year in advance, do a half issue, and preview several pages in Wizard. Looks like we won't be wasting our advertising dollars that way again. Well, there you go. An interesting theory, and I'd be interested in hearing what you have to say about it. Do you think comics publishers can really grind popular comics out just by following some simple formula? Or do you think there's more to it than that? Come to think of it, do you think magazine publishers can just grind out successful magazines by following a simple formula, like, say, the following. Number one, put a bunch of limited edition trading cards and other collectibles in the magazine. Number two, print a price guide with ridiculously inflated prices so people think the comics they just bought for cover price are really worth a bundle of money. Hint, ever try selling one of those hot comics for what these fanzines say they're worth? I guess now Gen 13 will always be listed at cover price. Lucky for you guys, huh? Number three, get the hottest artists in comics to contribute covers. Make sure everyone knows they're the hottest artists by making up a list and putting it in the back of the magazine. It saddens me that certain fan magazines use the comic marketplace as their playground and think they can predict, even dictate, which artists and which books will be hot. Sure, ads and promotions can create initial awareness of a project, perhaps helping to ensure high orders on the first issue, but continued success can only come with quality. No matter what the fan magazines may think, comic readers know a good book, or a bad book, when they see one, and they won't be fooled by hype. And speaking of hype, Due to the success of the entire miniseries, not just the heavily promoted first issue, Gen 13 will be graduating into its own ongoing series on sale as soon as this miniseries ends. Look for Gen 13 number 6 in your comic stores in October, hot on the heels of number 5, the last issue of the miniseries, in early July, and number 0 in August. I know that it was you guys, the fans and readers out there, and not any self-promoting fan magazines that made Gen 13 the success it is today. I'd like to thank all of you for picking up the book and giving it a read. It makes all the long hours and late nights Alex, Brandon, and I, and our dedicated support staff at Homage Studios have put into this book seem worthwhile. Jeff Scott Campbell, who will never, ever be on the Wizard Top 10 list. Ever. <laughs> so yeah, wow, seems so really taking Wizard to task there. Very curious to see how this plays out over the life of Wizard because, as many of you probably know, Gen 13 does end up on the cover several times. It actually occupies a lot of space on top 10 lists and articles throughout the history of Wizard magazine, so seems like whatever rocky start they got off to, they patched it up pretty quickly. Although I have to say, I went back into the archives, I cannot find this article that J. Scott Campbell is referring to. I don't know where it is, if it was in a letters column, if it is in just, you know, some other feature that they added on a whim. So I will keep an eye out, and when I find it, I will give you a heads up, because yeah, I'd really like to see just how viciously Wizard was uh, laying the smack down on the Gen 13 creative team. Well, there you have it. Until next time, stay cool, guys. Now, this month's Hunk and Babe of the Month. Sexy, it hurts, and I am too sexy for Milan.
Hey there, all you sexy people. It's time for Hunk and Babe of the Year? Ooh, we're going big for this issue. That's right, so let me introduce you to our Babe of the Month, none other than Catwoman. Any costume that's tight enough to show us whether the belly button of the heroine villainess is an innie or an outie gets a thumbs up from us. But aside from her obvious physical attributes, what else does Miss Kyle have going for? Why, she's a jewel thief, and that means she's a bad girl. And they're a whole lot more fun. Ho ho. Yeah, so this is interesting here in that this might be the official first use of Bad Girl in Wizard Magazine. And it should be mentioned that 1994 really is the year of the Bad Girl. So to put her right at the top there as they're going into this next phase of sexism in comics, you might call it. Yeah, seems very appropriate. Going forward in this section. It's, it's going to be very interesting to see who they select. But now, hey, who do we have for our hunk of the month, Annie Flowers? Time for hunk of the month. This month's hunk is Conan. Back when men were men and steroids was just another funny word, this Sumerian came from less than humble beginnings and became a king. With a buff bod, more money than Michael Jordan, and a kingdom all his own, not even the last action hero can detract from this hunk's appeal. And he is quite hunky, let me tell ya. I mean, he might be wearing animal skin and fur, which is kind of weird, but I can definitely see why Arnold Schwarzenegger played him in a movie. Or three. Thanks, Annie. And all you sexy people, ooh, stay smooth. Now we're gonna move on to a supersized homemade hero section with Steven and Adam. Let's hear it, guys. Homemade Heroes. Homemade Heroes. Homemade Heroes. Homemade Heroes. Hi everyone, this is Steven and welcome to Homemade Heroes and I have a special guest right now. Hey, it's Adam. Ooh, I had to jump in on this one. Because we're counting down the best homemade figures of 1993 and there's a lot. So we're just going to dive right in. Do you want to take the first one? I will. Now, this is really interesting because on the last mini-episode, you covered a Homer Simpson figure, or rather, a Homer Simpson head on a Hulk Hogan body that became Super Homer. This one is from Bob Torregrossa of Staten Island, New York. I'm assuming it's the same guy. Yes, it is. With Hawk Bart. <laughs> and so not hawking a loogie Bart, which Bart has been known to do, but just hawk Bart. And it says, hey man, with a little work on a Bart Simpson head and a muscular body, you can get goofy superheroes. And yeah. once again, that's a Hulk Hogan or Ultimate Warrior body. Those wings look like Ace McDuck from the Ninja Turtles line. They do. I think you're right. And I think it'd be interesting if he literally was just repainting the same figure. So he just would take a picture and then use it over again. <laughs> it's possible. Uh, so the next one is the Justice Society of America, which is like a series of dolls of the Justice Society from Scott Metzger of Daytona Beach, Florida. 
And it looks like almost like Mego style dolls. Yeah, it's it's interesting because yeah, they say they can't quite identify exactly where they came from, but they are in the style, you know, Mego Barbie and Barbie esque dolls yeah. and figures. I don't I don't really recognize them, but they're really cool. Yeah, I mean the only ones I can you know call out, you know, Starman, obviously you know the Alan Scott Green Lantern, and then we have you know the Jay Garrick Flash, and then there is Doctor Midnight. Yeah, and then the two female heroines i don't know nor do i yeah all right the next one is from john mooney of memphis tennessee we have keith giffen's ambush bug made from a superpowers flash this ambush bug figure would make keith giffen proud indeed pretty easy job there you know what's funny though is when i look at the face it makes me think of the design on the mask of spider-man 2099 i was thinking darth maul That was my my Rorschach test for this figure. (laughs) After that, we have Lobo from Joseph Simone and Anita Moretzi of Flushing, New York. All right, go Queens. Look at the detail given to every part of this impressive Lobo figure. Uh, And it says it was made from a Commando figure. Yeah, so this is a very rare toy line, this Commando toy line. Like, it kind of goes for big bucks these days. So I just think it's funny. Again, it's been defaced to create a Lobo. (laughs) I I didn't even know there was a Commando toy line. Exactly. That's why they're so so hot on the secondary market. All right, next one here is uh, the Great Guy Gardner. Not just Guy Gardner, this is The Great Guy Gardner by Jeremiah Hoover of Corpus Christi, Texas. It says, Guy's body looks as if it came from a Toy Biz Captain America, but the head escapes us. Sorry. Huh, whose head is that? Yeah, that, that's a good question. I mean, I'm kind of looking at it. At first, I wanted to say they just put hair on a Lex Luthor face, but I, I'm still unsure. That one's hard to make out. He definitely looks like a DC Super uh, Heroes figure mm-hmm. at Toy Biz Toy Line. That, but that's the Guy Gardner costume from, you know, Guy Gardner number one when he left the Green Lantern Corps and started yeah. his own solo issue. So it's kind of cool. And we're following that up with someone who's also cool, Exo Manowar uh, from Greg Kiefer of Jacksonville, Florida. This was crafted from a Toy Biz Iron Man figure. Pretty easy to see that if you had that toy. It's neat. Yeah, that's your thing. That Iron Man figure was originally very bulky, so this one is also quite bulky. Next, from Richard Thornquist of Wellesley, Mass., we have The Shocker. That's right. This guy was made from a Superpowers Green Lantern figure. I gotta say, it is pretty impressive because, you know, the hardest part of The Shocker is getting that waffled look, right, of his yellow Mm -hmm. portion of his costume. And these are some very nicely painted lines. Like, this is well-crafted. It's really cool. Then we have Crime Syndicate from Robert E. Grover of Lansdale, Pennsylvania. Uh, Power Ring was Toy Biz Riddler. Owl Man was a Bruce Wayne figure. You can see the Michael <laughs> Keaton face underneath those that owl head. Uh, Superwoman was a Toy Biz Wonder Woman. And Johnny Quick was a Toy Biz Flash. Uh, I gotta say, cool. they, they had to have won here only based on concept, because these actually look pretty terrible, especially the Owl Man. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's I think the uh the power ring might be the best of them. Yeah. He looks pretty cool. But yeah, it's just cool to see Michael Keaton's face underneath that weird head. <laughs> All right, next we have from Mike Irwin of McDonald, Ohio, a Captain Marvel 
that was also made from a superpowers green lantern but this is a very nice paint job i mean marvell is looking styling here he's got the nega bands and everything it's and it's actually the photography on it they gave him this very heroic pose like the angle of it there's a lot of uh you know uh empty space to really what do they call that negative space to really emphasize the look it's a great figure it it looks professional i would have bought this back in the day and it's followed up by an eternal warrior and magnus figure from mark Patton of south windsor connecticut uh and it says we have no idea what these guys used to be but they sure look neat to us i can't really tell what they were either i can the one on the left which is eternal warrior is the new adventures of he-man he-man okay because i saw the he-man head that's totally a he-man head yeah so i'm pretty sure the body is the same as far as i can tell uh the other one i'm going to guess it's some sort of like uh from the robin hood prince of thieves line just judging by the scale and comparison maybe uh, i was almost thinking cadillacs and dinosaurs very possible as well yeah we'll have to figure um, that one out next one over here is another group doing a whole team here which was legion 94 by bobby phelan of bowling green kentucky so there's a character named stealth that was a storm figure garen beck was a captain planet that hair man that's intense <laughs> uh vril docks was a bruce wayne figure from the transforming bruce wayne you know phase was also a storm ed lobo was a toy biz iron man so now you really got to give props to what you could do with a toy biz iron man because that's pretty impressive to whittle it down to a lobo <laughs> it sure is uh it's followed up by another cool group of figures the soviet super soldiers from trevor ellis of brockton massachusetts uh crimson dynamo was a toy biz iron man once again toy biz iron man coming into play dark star was a storm vanguard was a silver surfer ursa major's origin is unknown Red Guardian was a Captain America, and Phantasma was a Storm. It so, looks cool, like, you know, these Russian uh, superheroes. That's what I was going to say. Do you know how many of these characters are appearing in Black Widow? Because, I mean, obviously we know Red Guardian is, but are any of these other people there? I'm not sure. Was Crimson Dynamo, was he referenced at all in an Iron Man movie? That, I don't think so yet. Okay. You know, it feels like there's it's just a matter of time, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> sooner, sooner or later. Yeah. We'll come around to it. All right, next page here we have Death's Head 2 by Franklin Barnwell III of Buffalo, New York, crafted from a, a Power of He-Man figure. Is that different hmm. than the new adventures of He-Man? Power of He-Man, you Motu people, you got to tell us about that. I don't know. Yeah, that's interesting. But I mean, it's the head is gigantic, but his head is kind of gigantic in the comics, so it makes sense. But looking at how they decorated it, it actually is reminiscent of Thor, and it's almost like they should just used a toy biz thor body if that's what they were gonna go for i thought for sure this was a predator action figure but i guess i'm completely wrong <laughs> uh so next up uh from bobby fallon of bowling green kentucky once again we have new ray and old ray the new version used to be a bruce wayne from kenner's batman returns collection again that figure is coming into play big time here while the old ray was a toy biz flash they look pretty cool to me. That Michael Keaton figure is very versatile, as we've seen. He's becoming like the new superpowers Flash. And I'm excited, obviously, to see the Ray, the 90s version. I could do without the Golden Age Ray. So. <laughs> <laughs> Next here is a very, very tidy picture of Shadowhawk by Michael Pace of Bossier, Louisiana. And this guy used to be a Toy Biz Wolverine 2 figure. So I guess that makes sense. You know, they got the same uh, helmet structure look 
to their cowls. So there he is. But yeah, you can, you can just barely make it out. It's like, yeah, I, I assume it's good. If I was seeing it up closer, I might have a different opinion. <laughs> well, the, the, the knockoff of the knockoff. So next we have the new Titans uh, from Ronald Perviance of Tampa, Florida. These look awesome. I really like these. Raven was a Toy Biz Wonder Woman. Speedy was a Toy Biz Riddler. Starfire was also a Toy Biz Wonder Woman. Weren't a lot of female figures back then. Nightwing was a Toy Biz Riddler. Troya was yet another Toy Biz Wonder Woman. Jericho was a Superpowers Aquaman. And Wildebeest was a Superpowers Superman. That Nightwing, I think, is like the kind of the star of this group. It's that disco suit Nightwing. It's really cool. Great figures. Speedy's also really neat. Yeah, well, I think it's hilarious that they even bothered to... I mean, I don't know what she looks like under the cloak, but Raven is literally all you can see is the cloak and a little bit of the chin. So really, it could be anything under there. (laughs) Yeah, that was funny, too. Next up here, we have a a double shot here from Chris Ryder of Petaluma, California. So this is really interesting because he chose kind of the the non-Marvel and DC characters or even in image he went to dark horse and valiant so he has on the left uh, it says can you believe comics greatest world's most popular anti-hero used to be a toy biz archangel figure so that of course is x yeah from dark horse and on the right was solar the destroyer which was like this being that came out of the normal solar and uh, he was made from a captain america body and a cyclops head the x figure is pretty good but that's kind of a simple design the solar the destroyer is a little murky there the paint applications kind (laughs) of looks like a third grade project it's weird because that just looks like a pure cyclops figure i don't see the captain america body at all that looks like cyclops body from that toy line yeah it's a good point but i think you're right they may have misunderstood well come on wizard (laughs) (laughs) so next up we have a puck figure from francis P. Arincipia of Ridgewood, New York. Puck, according to Francis, was made from some dino figure. Puck, obviously, from Alpha Flight. I love Puck. It's weirdly lit. You can't really see what it is. It's a tiny little guy, almost like the Shadowhawk figure. Yeah, well, and I'll tell you, they're talking about some dino toy. Um, At this time, Kenner had a line of toys called The Bone Age, and I'm pretty sure it's from that line. And if it wasn't Kenner, it might have been Tonka, but I'm pretty sure Kenner had it in their action toy guides. So I think he's one of them. Well, fun fact. That's really interesting to know. Yeah, if I'm wrong, let us know, guys. Now on our final rundown here, we have Sunfire. Yes, one of the all-new, all-different X-Men from Marcus Carpentier of the Bronx, New York. And they say the top half was a Captain America and the bottom was a Wolverine 2. That one you could see because you could actually notice the, uh, it's not scalloping, what do you call it, fish scale? <laughs> yes. Yeah, yes. On the chest. Uh, you, you know what's interesting is now there have been two typos in this same article with the word Captain in Captain America. Oh yeah, this keep... one's Caption. <laughs> yeah, and that's, that's what the other one was too. So maybe just someone there didn't know how to spell Captain. I, I don't know. It's a very weird, consistent typo. Next up we have Steel and Rebus. I have no idea who they are, from Pete Garcia and Al Riano of Burbank, California. Cliff Steele from the Doom Patrol used to be a Kenner Batman, and his teammate Rebus was a Toy Biz Flash. I watched the Doom Patrol show. I don't, these characters were in it? Um, I think one of them, I feel like, because I think that must have just been like a 90s update of that Brendan Fraser, because he's Cliff Steele, right? Like I the robot so. man? 
I think so. Yeah. Those but... DC shows don't really grab me. Yeah, it's true. Because <laughs> they rebooted the Doom Patrol a couple times throughout the 80s and 90s. So Then next down here, we're back to the teams. This is Youngblood by Bob Gamache of Ashburnham, Mass. And this one is interesting because, yes, it is Rob Liefeld's Youngblood. So Bad Rock was a Toy Biz thing. Shaft has a Toy Biz Punisher body and a forearm head. Combat was a Toy Biz Strife. Die Hard was a Toy Biz Deadpool. And Chapel has a cable body and gun, a Punisher head, and a Kenner Terminator gun. So the funniest thing to me about this is how many of these figures are just recycled from Toy Biz X-Force and X-Men figures based on Rob Liefeld designs that he then went to Image and just recycled more of his designs. That's exactly what I was thinking. Die Hard and Deadpool are just identical. Yeah. Same character. So next up we have from Nick Rizzo of Chicago, Illinois, Nexus, who used to be a Toy Biz Silver Surfer. Nexus was one of the Valiant characters? No, he was actually an independent publication. I mean, as far as he predated Valiant, that was Steve Rude. That was something from like the mid to late 80s that huh. that continued over into the 90s. But yeah, it, it was a pre-Valiant creation. Well, I'm happy you're here to tell me about Nexus because I <laughs> I recognize the, the design, but I don't know much about the character. Yeah, it's on Comixology, and if you have time to go read it, like it's pretty fantastic. Oh, okay. I, I really enjoyed it. Todd McFarlane gets his own figure. Yes, by Scott <laughs> Tatina of Leesburg, Virginia. And it says, hey, what's he doing here? Hmm. Do you think it's appropriate that he was made from a Rambo figure? But the fun little, you know, Easter egg here is that, yes, it's definitely, you know, Todd whittled down from a Rambo, but he's got a t-shirt that has Felix the Cat on it. And as all Todd McFarlane fans know, he was very famous when he was drawing comics for always hiding a Felix the Cat somewhere in every book. Oh, I used to have those Rambo figures, and boy, was that not an appropriate toy line for children. Not at all, not at all. I actually have two of that Rambo figure that was used to create it, and a weapons pack (laughs) unopened. Because then, like, as you're you're a kid, you're playing with the Rambo toys, you're watching the Rambo cartoon. Do you then go to the store and rent, you know, First Blood or Rambo 2? Well, there was the Rambo cartoon, like you said, so I guess you just have to make do with that. Don't graduate until it's on TV in the edited version same with robocop another weird toy line cartoon for kids so next up we have who's called new batman i mean Azrael. And it's from Mark Rosenzweig of Deer Park, New York. Oh, Long Island. Uh, and it was taken from a Toy Biz Batman. Uh, the torso is from a secret agent Wolverine. And the gloves are from an Apocalypse 2. And the legs are from Kane 1. Wow, this is a real Frankenstein of a Yeah. Fake. It looks really cool. Yeah, it's a pretty good uh, approximation there, just seeing what pieces you could pull together. I do love, you know, because that that Secret Agent Wolverine had these big, like, golden shoulder pads on it, you know? Mm -hmm. So I just think it's funny. It's like, oh yeah, that's what you need, because it's the 90s. Your character's going to have shoulder pads, like the new Batman. And speaking of shoulder pads, we have from Mike Irwin of McDonald, Ohio. Once again, I guess, he's back. We have Hawkman. Ooh, but this was one of the new versions of Hawkman. They call it Hawkworld Hawkman, who used to be a superpowers Hawkman. So I kind of call shenanigans on that one. If you just take an existing character's figure and then update their costume to their new look, should that really qualify? 
Well, and, and I have the Superpowers Hawkman figure, and that body does not look like the Superpowers Hawkman body, so I don't know what that's from. Yeah, so again, maybe Wizard was just taking a shot in the dark. Yeah, or just, you know, saving some space for the edit. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, we are getting down to the winners here. So third prize went to the Green Lantern Corps, once again from Ronald Purviance of Tampa, Florida, and he just has... Six Green Lantern action figures. They look really cool. Creon was a superpowers Lex Luthor. Guy's body was a Toy Biz Riddler. His head was a Man of Steel's. And the feet are from a superpowers Luthor. Wow. Once again, a Frankenstein figure. John Stewart was a superpowers Superman. Brick was a Toy Biz Green Lantern. Tomar 2 was a Toy Biz Riddler. And there's a superpowers Hal Jordan, which is kind of uh, changed a little bit. Yeah, he has the white on the side of his hair. Plus, they have the in front just as a, a display piece. They have the actual Green Lantern from the Toy Biz Green Lantern ring, from what I mm-hmm. can tell there. So that's pretty cool. But I, I want to ask these people that make these teams or that just submit so many custom figures, where were they getting them at the time? I mean, was this all garage sale pickups? Were all these figures on clearance? somewhere like it's just it's really interesting they had so many to work with and so many often of the same exact figure that's true that's that's yeah because where were you finding these things there was no ebay Mm -hmm. just buy like a big lot of figures yeah all right next up we have yellow jacket by trevor ellis of brockton mass and uh trevor always seems to get the most out of his toy biz silver surfer figures as is evident from this sharp looking guy yes wizard is on to you trevor (laughs) (laughs) very versatile speaking of silver surfer uh from b jump of fairfield ohio we have a foursome of space ghost Starman, Captain Adam, once again the captain misspelled as Capcion. <laughs> so clearly someone didn't know how to spell captain in the wizard world there. Uh, and Blue Beetle. And it looks like it looks as if all these figures are derived from a Toy Biz Silver Surfer figure, but Starman has a Kenner Robin Hood head and Captain Adam has a super Superman head. So, man, that Silver Surfer got some play. Really, it did. And it's such a weird collection, right? Because you have the two characters that used to be Charlton Comics characters, and then Starman, and then Space Ghost for no reason. It's just like, (laughs) I like Space Ghost. (laughs) Well, who doesn't love Space Ghost? And it's funny because that Kevin, you know, the Robin Hood Prince of Thieves line was just all repurposed superpowers and Return of the Jedi figures. So the Kevin Costner head was basically the scale of all those toys. Yeah. Now, I'm going to jump down below that for this next one because we have from nigel hawcroft of cheshire great britain adam warlock and craven the hunter again a very strange pairing of characters to put together and it says both adam warlock and craven used to be toy biz superman figures pretty neat huh so i mean on the craven side it's funny because you can just imagine like doing some marvel dc crossover and superman goes undercover and <laughs> to dress like craven but this adam war Warlock. I mean, nice gold paint application, but he looks really fat because he put a belt, you know, this like gold band belt around the middle and it it makes him look like he's just thick all the way through <laughs> and so he looks so chubby just based on the angle so it's pretty hilarious he's the perfect specimen <laughs> uh, so next up we have black lightning from robert e grover of lansdale pennsylvania he used to be a kenner robin hood figure with and he has an azim head 
also from the Kenner Robin Hood line. Azim was played by Morgan Freeman. Looks like, cool. Yeah, you painted his eyeballs yellow, so that's cool. He got the little crackle in the eyes. It's neat, and I like the lightning effect on his chest. Yeah. Now, uh, second prize here. I don't know what's going on. Trevor Ellis is back with the porcupine. And then so the uh, wizard's commentary here is, did anyone ever think they'd see this figure? He is made from, yes, Trevor's patented technique of successfully converting Silver Surfer figures. Good job, Trevor. But I uh, was like, okay, who is the porcupine? Is he a Malibu Comics character? Blah, blah. So you have to actually look at the copyright next to the picture, and it says, the porcupine, 1993, Marvel Comics copyright. So apparently he is a Marvel villain, I'm going to assume. Have you ever run into to him in your reading, Stephen? No, I've never heard of Porcupine, and now I'm looking him up. I was going to say, he he has to be a Spider-Man villain, because all his villains were based on animals. I see. Now I'm looking at him, and that's a very accurate figure. He was a weapons designer. Oh, you know what he was? He was an Ant-Man and Wasp villain. Really? Wow. Is he going to show up in the next movie? (laughs) You know, I hope so. Wait. Now I'm reading this. The porcupine is among the many costume menaces assembled by Dr. Doom to disrupt the wedding of Reed Richards and Susan Storm. (laughs) (laughs) He's he's a a wedding crasher. He's one of the original wedding crashers. That's right. So we can get Vince Vaughn to play him or Owen Wilson uh, in the third (laughs) Ant-Man movie. There you go. So now the grand prize winner is Galactus from Kevin Poladano and Adam Sikora of Oshawa, Canada. And it says it took two guys to produce this masterpiece, but it shows. They're not sure what they made it from, okay? But they think it was from a cop's cuckoo figure. Congratulations and good job. It's a what do you think of this figure? Um, it is very skinny. He has a giant head and then these little arms and these little legs. I mean, the paint job is nice and he's got this nice like leather tunic skirt thing on, which works out. I mean, it looks like Galactus. You know what they're going for, but it looks like Galactus ran out of planets to eat. Yeah, exactly. He went on a planet diet. He's not <laughs> eating planets anymore. I would say that like some of the other group photos were more spectacular in my opinion i would agree yeah than this than this grand prize but you know good for them give it to the canadians they won this round i mean it's possible they just said well it's literally the biggest figure you know as far as the character so it's got to win the biggest prize now i have pulled up a cops and crooks cuckoo figure because i know a lot about the cops and crooks line but i had never heard of that one that had to be like a wave three you know like tail end that nobody bought and i'm looking at the body here and it can't be that because it has jointed elbows and this definitely does not have jointed elbows they're just solid legs and solid arms so yeah i'm not sure although you know those arms if they didn't modify them at all i wonder if those were like iron man uh you know marvel super Superheroes Secret Wars arms because he had the big gauntlet glove type of thing on. It's hard to tell because the perspective is so strange because they Mm -hmm. made it a full page picture. So I can't really tell if it's a small toy or a large toy. It's really weird. That being the case, still walked away with the prize. I think it's worth reading then now that we know who the grand prize winner. Let's find out what he won as we close out here. The grand prize winner will not only receive every prize mentioned on this page, which we can get to or not, but also will win a Madman Adventures number three, signed by Michael Allred. Prototype number one, signed by Tom Mason, Lenz 
Krasuski, David Ammerman, and James Pascoe. Namor number 26, signed by Jay Lee. And Extreme number 0, San Diego Comic-Con edition, signed by Rob Liefeld. Wow. Uh, I'm going to assume the Mad Men Adventures number 3 is the one that is worth the most. That's what I was thinking. That sounded like the coolest prize. Yeah, it's like Mike Allred's star has only risen since this time, and everybody else has kind of been like, oh yeah, remember them? Remember mm-hmm. they did stuff? <laughs> Including Rob. No, we're, we're kidding. You're still working, Rob. <laughs> if, only, if only he could block you twice. That's right. Uh, but yeah, but everything else was basically just a whole bunch of signed comics. But man, that was super fun. Like, Because the last time they did a feature this big on Homemade Heroes was in the Comic-Con special that they did with that big fold-out image cover. So it's awesome to see that many in one place at one time. Yeah, it's, it's, it's really cool. Some really great choices here. And if you had to pick your favorite what do you think it would be i was i really like that teen titans group i would say the teen titans group or the green lantern group that would be my favorite how about you for sheer novelty factor I gotta go with Todd McFarlane. I mean, <laughs> a Todd McFarlane. And the, the idea that he's had his own toy company for so many years, was there ever a Todd McFarlane figure? That's what I want to know. That's a really good question. <laughs> I, I know just... that they created this figure called Corn Boy, who I think is a guy who actually went on to become a famous toy sculptor with the Four Horsemen. But he originally worked for Todd at his toy company. Yeah, but I don't know. We'll have somebody to tell us. If you got if you got eyes on a Todd McFarlane action figure, let us know. <laughs> if not, just make one out of a Sylvester Stallone figure. <laughs> so thanks for listening to Homemade Heroes, and let's see what Michael's got. The next segment we have is Hardly Recognizable. The real challenge today's superheroes face is the ever-changing comic book marketplace. And a lot of characters got rebranded, redesigned, new costumes, a new person playing the role. So obviously the first would be Superman, who, as we know, got killed and then came back with the super mullet. And the black suit, which is the, you know, the solar suit, the regenerative suit, whatever you want to call it. But, you know, the biggest change for Superman was the long hair. Next is Batman, and as we know, we've got the broken spine of Bruce Wayne, and so we have the Jean-Paul Valley Azriel-style brutal, terrifying Batman. Then we have Daredevil with his redesigned black and red costume with the metal spikes on his shoulders and all that stuff that doesn't make any sense. Then we have Colossus, which I don't really know what his redesign was. I guess because he was always well-mannered and he's rebelling from Professor Xavier, so he's hardly recognizable because of that. Okay, sure. Next, we have Wolverine, and his adamantium was ripped out of him by Magneto, so he had the bone claws. Then we have Iron Man, certainly no stranger to change, with numerous upgrades to his Iron Man armor. He's overcome a drinking problem. He's alienated from fellow Avengers. Uh, Tony Stark was no longer Iron Man briefly, and... uh, Uh, He even lost his financial empire. The next one we have is my least favorite comic book character of all time, Magnus Robot Fighter. 
And I don't even care what his changes were because I only just figured out who he was two weeks ago. So what's his change? Nothing. Don't care. <laughs> then we have a character named Ray, R-A-I, whom I didn't know existed until this issue. And I'm sure we've talked about him, but it doesn't seem significant enough for me to care. Uh, the next one that's hardly recognizable is Exo Manowar. I guess he's changed from a Roman-era Zeogoth who couldn't even communicate in the modern world to the owner and CEO of Orb Industries, one of the world's richest and most advanced technological corporations, and that is the hardly recognizable section. Steven and I will now be discussing yet another top 10 list in this supersized issue of Wizard with the top 10 best-selling comics of all of 1993. This list really will surprise you. So number 10 is Batman 4. 97, where Bane breaks Batman's back. Number nine is Rye number three. Bane does not break Batman's back in this one, but it says another short printed book, which peaked at number two in May. I don't know what Rye is. Was this an image book? Or no, it's a Valiant book, right? It's a Valiant book. Huzzah. Uh, Another Valiant book is Shadow Man number 16, which is the first appearance of Dr. Mirage, and it peaked at number two in August. Okay. Ooh. Oh, look, I get another rye. Number seven is rye number four. An unbelievably short printed book, roughly 29,000, which peaked at the number two slot in March. Number six is Vengeance of Bane number one, the first appearance and origin of the man that broke the Dark Knight. There you go. Number five is Bloodshot number six, the first appearance of Joe Quesada's good old friend Ninjack. Took the coveted number one slot in July. Number four is Spawn number one, an image zero coupon book and the conclusion of the spawn violator fight it peaked at number four in march and also in wizard number 20 number three is batman sword of azriel number one the first appearance of azriel the current batman peaked at the number two position in october <laughs> oh my god <laughs> i can't believe what number two is i can't believe what number two and one is. oh my god i, I don't even want to talk about one we'll get there <laughs> number two is Rye number zero. I feel like I have to read this Rye book for some reason. The Prelude to Deathmate. This issue peaked at the number three slot in June in Wizard of number 23. There's three Ryes in the top 10. I can't believe it. Why? Seriously? (laughs) Who was reading Rye? I didn't know it existed till today. Okay. Number one is, uh, I can't believe this, but okay. It's Magnus Robot Fighter number 12, the first Valiant appearance of Turok, which lasted four months straight at the number one spot. What? No way. Last saw the number one slot in May. I f- what? what? I find I find this very hard to believe. <laughs> I find this very, very hard to believe. Uh, it's crazy. Yeah. Who was reading this? No one. You can no find one. this in a dollar in a quarter bin or a dollar bin right now. I'm gonna look right now on eBay what this terrible book is probably going for. I don't think it's worth anything. Probably not. Let's I don't see. think it's worth the red shorts it's printed on. Magnus Robot Hunter number 12 fighter robot fighter robot see so it shows what I know robot hunter fighter number 12 well it is 
selling on eBay for ungraded $10, graded 70 bucks. Okay, cool. But there's like 9 million copies of it on eBay. Yeah. So clearly nobody cares. <laughs> nobody. I, just, I don't understand why why they were pushing Valiant so hard, but okay. Or or that robot hunter guy, like robot fighter, whatever his name is. Who that's, cares? That's, yeah. That's Magnus. <laughs> yeah, I know. Exactly. <sighs> uh, yeah, I guess that is the top 10 books of all of 93. That's like saying... The top 10 movies of 93. It's like saying Surf Ninjas topped the box office that year. Right. Beat Mrs. Doubtfire. Yeah. So that's it for mini episode 29.5. Don't forget to check us out on our social media at Wizards Comics on Twitter, at Wizards underscore comics on Instagram. You can also find us on our Patreon, patreon.com slash Wizards Comics. If you want to hear this stuff raw and unedited and uncensored, we also have our YouTube channel, which we have videos coming out like crazy. My my computer's going to set itself on fire from the amount of editing I'm doing in videos. And um, we also have our Tee Public store where you can buy some sweet swag. I need to get myself a new hoodie myself. I'm, I'm due for a new wizard accoutrement, if you will. <laughs> <laughs> so until next time, don't forget to get your books bagged and boarded. of the Retro Network.